Greetings to all of you who are joining us online and also those of you who are here at Central Campus along with those who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, down in South Calgary and also in Northwest Calgary. Recently, Angus Reid did a poll which revealed that only 25% of Albertans approve of the way that our provincial government is handling the COVID pandemic. The survey also indicated that nearly half are unhappy because they believe the protocols are too restrictive, while the other half are displeased because they believe the protocols aren't strict enough. That is a very real picture of the division and the polarization that is occurring in our province, across our country, and in different parts of the world. There's a growing distrust in government, in the media, and even our healthcare authorities. Frustration and confusion is escalating, and people are growing impatient, and in some cases even nasty uh, in their dealings with other people. Recently, I had a conversation with someone who told me that their family was barely speaking to one another because of differences over COVID-related issues. He said, some of my friends are spending hours on the internet following conspiracy theories, and frankly, I'm just not on the same page as they are, and it's tearing us apart because with some of them, it's not just a difference of opinion, they see it as a faith issue. He expressed concern uh, about where all of this polarization was headed, and he wasn't sure who to trust or what to believe anymore. And then he said this, Pastor Henry, I guess what I'm really asking is, as a Christian, what should my focus in life be during this crazy time? I mean, how should we as Christians be living during these uncertain times? Well, those are important questions, and many people are asking them. And so beginning this weekend, we're starting a new series of messages entitled, How Then Shall We Live? to address uh, these questions. People are wondering whether we are seeing some of the signs of Christ's return, and have been asking me to consider preaching through the book of Revelation. Uh, now, if you've been part of our church for uh, more than 22 years, you may recall that I, you probably won't, but you may recall that I actually took us through the book of Revelation back in the year 1999, just before the Y2K computer crisis in which a chorus of voices at the time warned that computers all over the world would shut down December 31st, 2000 because of a glitch in their programming. There were predictions of massive long-term power failures uh, the crippling of hospitals and financial institutions, government services, uh, military defense systems, traffic, telephone, office systems, uh, as well as major shortages of water, food, and other necessities. And at that time, numerous Bible prophecy teachers began to make strong connections uh, between the Y2K issue and the movement toward a one-world government, a cashless society, the rise of the Antichrist, and the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Fear began to grow. And even though the government assured us that the computer glitch would be fixed on time, many did not trust or believe them. Well, anyways, as I've thought about this, um, Rather than do Revelation all over again, uh, for now, let me just give you a summary. 40 sermons in about four sentences. How's that? If I were to summarize the main message that virtually all Bible-believing scholars agree on, it would be this. Even though Matthew 24, verse 36, clearly states we don't know when, what we do know is this. Jesus Christ is coming again. Amen. He could be coming at any time, and so be alert and be ready. 
But don't let that keep you from faithfully and passionately pursuing what the Bible calls us to be and to do. Plan like Jesus isn't coming for many years yet, but live like he could be coming today or tomorrow. So there you have it. A 20-second summary of 22 chapters of Revelation and over 30 hours of sermons. <laughs> so in light of that, let me get into this series by asking you this question. If you knew that Jesus was coming back one year from today, of course we don't know, but let's pretend. If you knew Jesus was coming back one year from today, what would your focus in life be from this moment forward? Would your values and your priorities change at all? Would you spend your time differently? Would you be retreating and hunkering down, waiting for his return? Or would you be serving others and boldly declaring your love for Jesus and his soon return? Well, that's going to be the focus of this series. How then shall we live in these uncertain days? Now, spoiler alert, the short answer to this question is that regardless of what we face in life, be it prosperity or adversity, be it peace or unrest, be it health or sickness, be it pandemic or no pandemic, our primary focus and our mission as Christians should continue to be what it has always been. The Apostle Paul summarized our calling as Christians best when he essentially said, come what may, for me to live is Christ. That's it. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep focused on his word and how he lived his life at a time that the governing authorities of his day were set on taking his life. I also encourage you to read how the early Christians lived their lives during times of intense persecution, facing imprisonment, torture, and death. In Acts chapter 2, we read that they focused primarily on three major things. They pursued a loving relationship with God. They also pursued a loving relationship with each other. And thirdly, they pursued loving relationships with people in their community. In fact, it says their love for God and for one another was so captivating that the people in their community wanted to be part of them. The Bible says as they devoted themselves to these things, God blessed them to the point where they turned their world upside down. Prayers were answered. Bodies were healed. Lives were dramatically changed. And God added to their number daily of those people who are putting their trust in Jesus Christ. Well, I believe that God wants to bless us in the same way today and use us as individual Christians, but also together as a church, to turn our world right side up for his glory. But it is only going to happen if we give our lives in the same way the early church did, and that is to love our Lord, to love each other, and also to love those that God brings into our life. Now in this message, I want to talk about the first of those, pursuing a loving friendship with God. See, God didn't create us uh, because he was bored or lonely or, or because he just needed some cheap help to take care of this planet. No, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, they were experiencing such a depth of love and intimacy, they decided to widen the circle. Love does that. Love wants to widen the circle. You can't contain it. And they decided to widen the circle of their love by creating us and inviting us to experience the love in the community that they shared. In short, God created you and me in large part because he wants to be friends with us. And the sad thing is this. If we give our lives to lesser things, to temporary things, and never become a true friend of God, 
we miss the very reason for which we were created. And we will also miss being with him forever in heaven. Read Matthew 7, 21 and 22 sometime. And Jesus says there, there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, they will, they will refer to him as Lord. They will say, Lord, Lord, and, and some of them will even do wonderful things in my name, says Jesus, but they won't enter the kingdom of heaven because I never knew them. In other words, he's saying, we never had an authentic relationship. And so there is nothing more important than pursuing a relationship with God. Now I should point out that as important as it is for us to pursue God, God has been pursuing us all of our lives, wanting to bring us into right relationship with himself. However, once we entrust our lives and our eternity to the Lord, we will want to pursue knowing him and grow closer to him because he already knows us. But do we know him? Now people say, I want to grow closer in my relationship with God, but how do I do that? What does that involve on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, to help guide us, I want to take us back to a well-known verse that we find in 2 Chronicles. It was on the occasion that King Solomon dedicated the temple. The Lord appeared to Solomon and gave him some warnings and assurances, including the promise that he would hear their prayers, that he would forgive their sins, and that he would heal their land. However, God's promise came with the following premise that we see in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now, I want you to notice that this promise was made to ancient Israel and not to any other nation. And so we're mistaken when we assume that if we fulfill the premise that God gives here that he's also going to heal our nation. Now he might do that, but we're being presumptuous in doing so because this promise was intended for Israel, not for Canada necessarily. However, this promise does give us a glimpse of God's heart, what he cherishes in a friendship, the kind of relationship he wants to have with us, his people, and therefore will serve as a guide in addressing the question that we're, we're, we're talking about today. And to, so to begin with, the pathway to a closer friendship with God is humility. Verse 14, God himself says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. The core of all sin, the heart of all of our issues and our problems in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships is pride. It is arrogance. It is self-sufficiency. It's thinking that we're God, we're at the center of our universe, or that we don't need God. And that's why God hates pride, and why the scriptures tell us that he opposes it. Now in Mark chapter 10, we re read the story of a young man who was living the good life, who had what others could only dream of having, and yet he was miserable, so much so that he sought out Jesus for help. And he asked Jesus, what he needed to do in order to inherit eternal life. And Jesus reminded him of the importance of keeping the commandments, and the young man replied that he kept them all. Now, Jesus didn't challenge him on this, and so we can conclude that here was a young man who not only had lots of money and all the things that money can buy, but he was a good guy as well. He didn't mistreat people. He, he wasn't unfaithful to his wife. He was a person of integrity. He honored his father and mother, and he loved his neighbor as himself. He not only lived a good life, but he was a good person. And so what could possibly be missing? Well, verse 21 says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything that you have and give to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. Jesus exposes this young man's heart, and he essentially says, you've kept all the commandments except the first and most important one. There is a God in your life that you are putting ahead of me. If you want to be in relationship with me, if you want to inherit eternal life, then you can't have any other gods before me. Not your money, not your relationships, not your pleasures, not your position, not your desire to have the good life, or your need to be liked, accepted, or successful. Now, I want to be clear, having money or a high-profile position or fame or any of these other things are not bad in and of themselves. But Jesus says, if you can't hold these things with an open hand, then they are not your means of support. They are your God. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, you can't serve two masters, two gods at the same time. It can't be done. Trying to serve both leads not only to spiritual bondage, but it leads to frustration. It fills your life with anxiety and fear and robs you of joy and peace and a lot of sleep. The Apostle James said, the double-minded person is unstable in all they do. More than once, the message that Jesus emphasized in his teaching was, if you want all of me, if you want to truly know me and experience all that I have for you, then I need to have all of you. Well, when the rich young man heard this in verse 22, it says his face fell. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, Mark Batterson says, if you feel bad for this rich young man, it shouldn't be because of what Jesus asked him to give up. Instead, it should be because of the opportunity this young man passed up. Jesus not only offered him eternal life, but he basically said to him, if you will release your grip on what you think is the good life, if you will stop worshiping and trusting in the temporary things that you are counting on to give you status and to give you admiration and the accolades from others, and instead put your trust in, in me and follow me, I will show you how to live the greatest and most exciting life possible with no regrets. And that is what the young man walked away from. And church, Jesus extends the same offer to you and to me. He offers us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. He sincerely wants to be our closest friend, to guide us, protect us, empower us, transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. But he can only do these things in us if we humble ourselves and put our life in his hands. Amen. Friendship with God begins here humbling ourselves and surrendering our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the pathway to a closer friendship with God is prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. If you want a litmus test of how much pride and self-sufficiency there is in your heart, then examine your prayer life. A prideful heart says, I don't need God's help. Or I don't have time to pray for God's help. A prideful person trusts in his own abilities and believes that God won't help him even if he does pray. And so why bother? On the other hand, a humble person recognizes her need for God and therefore goes to him often in prayer. She invites the Lord into every situation, every decision, 
by praying to him throughout her day. Colossians 4.2 calls us to be devoted to prayer. But it's important, church, that we not see prayer as a duty, as a requirement, as a formality that we must do. No, prayer fundamentally is an invitation by God to be in constant communication with him as a friend and to deepen that friendship through our communication with him. He invites us to come to him at any time and to talk to him as much as we want to. He assures us that he hears us and that he understands and that he is responding to our prayers in his own way and in his own time. We can trust him in this. In fact, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest, that's referring to Christ, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now there's at least three ways we can grow in our friendship with God through prayer. First of all, by scheduling a regular appointment with God, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, on a daily basis, just like we schedule an appointment with other people. A second way is to include the Lord in your day. And throughout the day to stop, even just for a few moments, and whisper prayers to him. When you begin your day, confess any sins to him and ask him to fill you with his spirit. That's the first thing that you should do every day. Lord, fill me with your your spirit. Ephesians 5, 18. Open your hands to the Lord, just like mine are right now, and ask the Lord to live out the life of Christ through you right now, and to use your life for his glory. Ask him to guide you, to give you his assignments, and then to empower you to do what he's asking you to do. And then as you step into your day, believe that God will do what you have asked of him as you talk with family members, working associates, or even complete strangers, trust the Holy Spirit is working through your words and through your life and accomplishing things that you could never accomplish in your own strength. When you're working at your desk and you're seeking wisdom or you're you're walking into another meeting, stop for a moment and ask the Lord for his wisdom. Ask him for guidance. And then believe he will give you what you need when you need it. And then thirdly, take extended times with God alone. A weekly Sabbath. A few days, even a week or more. Two or three times a year. In which you have a retreat with him. And... You not only talk extensively with him about your life, but you also wait to hear from him. All of these times with the Lord in prayer will enrich and deepen your friendship and your walk with him. A third pathway to a closer friendship with God is to seek his face. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Now to seek God's face means to seek his presence or his person. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. 
This passage says that God's looking for a certain kind of heart. He is searching the whole world and he is asking, is there anyone who wants to know me? Is there anyone who wants to get close to me? We're made in the image of God, aren't we? Do you find yourself asking that question? Is there anyone who wants to know me? Is there anyone that wants to grow close to me? Well, God wants to cultivate a closer relationship with you and with me. He wants to strengthen, empower, and bless us. He wants to accomplish his kingdom purposes through us. But that won't happen if our heart is devoted elsewhere or if our heart's divided. Sometime a parent said to me, you know, sometimes I feel like my kids only call me when it's, you know, when they need something. (laughs) Have you ever felt that way? The people that you care about only seem to be in touch when they want something from you? It hurts because we long to, to be loved. We long to be wanted. We long to be wanted for who we are, not just for what we can do for others. In the same way, even though God loves it when we come to him in prayer and we we share our burdens and our concerns with him, it grieves his heart when the only time we choose to approach him is to ask him for things because he knows we won't get to know him if that's all we do, if we're doing all the talking. We're not going to experience the many faith adventures that he's ordained for us because if we keep him at a safe, comfortable distance. Psalm 42, 1 says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You see, we may not recognize it, but that hole that's in your heart can only be filled by God. In the same way that uh, Adam and Eve um, were walking and talking with God and did life together with God, we have that need as well, and nothing else will satisfy that longing for, re- for rich connection with the Lord. Sadly, we look to other things, you know, cheap temporary substitutes like, you know, power, possessions, uh, a, a position to somehow satisfy that hunger and that thirst in our soul. But only God can satisfy. C.S. Lewis once made the observation that God offers us a life that far exceeds anything this world has to offer if we earnestly seek him. But far too many of us are too easily pleased with the lesser things of life. Now, seeking God intensely means you're not doing it in your spare time. It's not some low low priority. No, it's a serious pursuit, similar in the way that about 100 years ago, or at least it seems that long ago, I pursued Gwen, the woman of my dreams, who is now my wife. I mean, I would do anything to be with her. I would cancel meetings. I would miss work. I'd skip classes. Not good, by the way. But I would do it in order to be with her. And again, this is my perspective, but I would spend ridiculous amounts of money in an attempt to impress her. No mountain was too high, no valley too deep. I wanted to be with her. And folks, in the same way, pursuing God, it just can't be this low priority, something that we fit into an already overcrowded schedule. It has to be an all-consuming focus and pursuit in life. Every once in a while, 
when I think about the priority I give to Jesus, I, I think about this. If Jesus were to appear to me in person, in the flesh, he would not only have my full attention for however long he wanted it, but I would clear my calendar to spend every possible moment with him. I mean, wouldn't you? Now, here's the thing. Even though I can't see him physically, I believe to the core of my being that he is alive and that he is with me. No differently than if he were standing right here next to me. And yet, I will often fail to give him the priority he deserves. Oh, I've had seasons where I have pursued him with a passion and I went to another level in my relationship with him. But far too often I allow other lesser things to keep me from pursuing a closer walk with him. And I realize it's an issue of faith. It's an issue of trust. And so one of my prayers has been, Lord, give me the faith to seek you in the same way that I would if you were standing beside me in person. You know, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, I suppose that there are a myriad of ways that he rewards us. But one of the main ways that he rewards us, and we must get this, friends, one of the main ways that he rewards us is he speaks to us. You've probably noticed that a, a good friendship requires two-way communication. I mean, if you do all the talking or most of the talking, chances are you don't have very many friends. Well, it's no different in our relationship with God. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And unlike human friends, he's incredibly gracious and he's patient with us and he won't write us off if we do all the talking whenever we meet with him. However, if we do all the talking, we won't know God. Do you understand that? If you meet with someone and you do all the talking, you will never get to know that person. And that's the problem. We won't get to know God. Not only that, but we're not going to hear from him and we're not going to receive his guidance for our lives. And you see, one of the greatest rewards that we can receive from the Lord is to ask the question, Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me through the scriptures? What are you saying to me through this sermon right now? And Lord, what are you asking me to do about it? And then to listen and hear from him and his direction for our lives. Now, one of the primary ways God speaks to us is through the scriptures. In the Greek language, there are two meanings for the term word. Logos and rhema. Logos is the word of God to everyone. Rhema is the word of God to you personally. The Bible contains God's logos word or God's general will for all people in all places at all times. Over the years, people have said to me that they wish that God would tell them audibly what he wanted them to do. They've said, I just wish that God would just write it on a piece of paper. Well, he won't do that if he's already written it. Amen. Are you getting that? The question is, have you read it? Have you read his letter? Therefore, the more I read and I study and I meditate on the scriptures, the more I hear it taught in worship services like this, the better I will be able to understand who God is but also what God's direction and his will for my life is and the values and the priorities that he wants me to pursue and the way that he wants me to live. Now at times God will give you a rhema or a personal word through the scriptures, through his still small voice. 
Many of you, I'm sure, have had the experience where you're reading the scriptures and suddenly a verse or a phrase just leaps off the page at you. And in that moment, you feel like God is speaking directly to you. You know it. He's talking to you about a sin in your life that you need to confess and deal with and turn away from. He's talking to you about an attitude that you need to correct or a person you need to forgive or serve or call up or pray for or perhaps a promise that you need to embrace by faith. But you see, you won't hear God speak to you like this if you don't make it a priority to be with him and to hear his voice through reading his word and just being still before him. You know, sometimes my day is, is, is so full of other things. I come to my quiet time with the Lord, and, and if I'm really honest about what I'm thinking, I'm essentially saying, okay, Lord, here I am. Please speak to me now through your word, but please be quick about it because I, I've got another meeting in 10 minutes. Did you ever think that way? Well, hear me clearly. You'll never know God or become a friend of God in a hurry. Close friendships, they take time. And if you want God to be your closest friend, and I pray it is your greatest quest in life, that he needs to be your top priority. Now, to be clear, God doesn't want to be in competition with your family. God doesn't want to be in competition with your work. He doesn't want to be in competition with your studies. He doesn't want to be in competition even with your recreation. What God wants is to be at the center of it all. And one of the things that years ago I prayed was, Lord, what does it mean for you to be at the center of my family? What does it mean for you to be at the center of my recreation? What does it mean for you to be at the center of my life, the center of, of my, my, my work and all the rest? What does that mean? And I began to listen to him and he began to speak to me about what that meant. Now certainly there are areas, there's some foundational practices like solitude in prayer, Bible reading and meditation, gathering together with others to worship our Lord, to celebrate what he's doing in our lives and to hear his word taught. These are critical and important and we need to set time aside for them. But what we need to understand is God wants to hear from us and he also wants to speak to us in the context of all of life's activities. And if we want to grow closer to him, we need to listen to him, we need to have our ears attuned to him and consciously invite him to speak to us, to guide us right in the middle of life itself when we're writing a tough exam or we're, having a, we're in the middle of figuring out a tough project or having a tough conversation or in the middle of a temptation uh, to procrastinate or to lose it with a co-worker um, or, or, or some other sin. And instead of doing what we would normally do to stop for a moment and just say, Lord, I need wisdom right now. Lord, I need patience right now. Lord, I need whatever it is you need at that moment. And then to hear him remind you or to say to you, trust me in this. Don't do what you feel like doing right now. Do the right thing. Let me grow your character. Let me grow your, your patience. Let me grow your kindness. Let me grow the depth of your faith right now. And you see, when you begin to have that kind of two-way communication going on throughout your day, you're going to become a friend of God. Amen. And then finally, the pathway to a closer friendship with God is to love and serve him wholeheartedly. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way. You know, when we think of wicked ways, we immediately think of sins 
that we believe are, are more wicked than other sins. Murder, rape, adultery, and all the like. And all of these are terrible things and they need to be repented of and dealt with. But the most wicked thing that we can do in God's eyes, and we miss this, folks, the most wicked thing we can do in God's eyes is for our love for Him to grow cold. For us to begin loving and serving other gods. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus spoke to the ancient church in Ephesus. I am going to preach a little bit about Revelation. Here we go. And he commended them for a number of things, including their hard work and their perseverance in doing good, despite much hardship. But Jesus went on to say, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. So what is first love? First love is the love we enjoyed when we initially committed our life to Christ. It was the time in our lives when Jesus was our greatest treasure. It was the time in our lives when knowing him, talking to him, hearing from him through the scriptures, uh, serving him, gathering with others uh, to worship him, just brought incredible delight. Unfortunately, the flame can die down over time. And our relationship with the Lord can grow distant and cold and our Christian walk can become routine and boring and empty. And before we know it, our lives are not very different from the lives of those in our society who, claim, who do not claim to be Christ followers. Paul points out what that looks like in 2 Timothy 3.2 where he says, soon... He talks about us being lovers of ourselves. He talks about being lovers of money, proud, ungrateful, unforgiving, slanders, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So how do we restore our first love? Well, Jesus gives us the answer, Revelation 2, verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Think about it. Reflect on it. Repent and do the things you did at first. The first step, says Jesus, is to consider how far you have fallen. And I want us to do that right now for a moment, just to consider, to reflect. Um, years ago, I came across a piece written anonymously by someone who spelled out some of the symptoms of losing your first love. And I'm just going to read them to you. Number one, and as I read these, invite the Lord to speak to you about any that may be true of you. And each of these, by the way, are based on Scripture. So number one, when my delight in the Lord is no longer as great as my delight in someone or something else, I have left my first love. Number two, when my soul does not long for times of rich fellowship in God's word or in prayer, I have left my first love. Three, when my thoughts during leisure moments consistently focus on everything and everyone but the Lord, I have left my first love. Number four, when I claim to be only human, and when I easily give in to those things which I know displeases the Lord, I have left my first love. Number five, when I do not willingly and cheerfully give of my time and talent and treasure to God's work and to the needs of others, I have left my first love. When I cease to treat every Christian and every person as I would the Lord, I have left my first love. When I view the commands of Christ as restrictions to my happiness, rather than expressions of his love, 
I have left my first love. When I inwardly strive for the acclaim of this world rather than the approval of the Lord, I have left my first love. When I fail to make Christ or his words known because I fear rejection or embarrassment, I have left my first love. And finally, when I am unable to forgive another for hurting or offending me, I have left my first love. Jesus says we restore our first love by first considering how far we have fallen. So did God's Spirit point out anything specific to you as these were read? Well, if he did, Jesus says the next step is to repent. To repent means to change your mind about your attitude, about your behavior. It means to turn and go the other way. If my people will turn from their wicked ways. Now repentance is more than a one-time act. It's a way of living. It is the process of keeping our hearts soft before the Spirit of God, always allowing the Spirit to point out anything about us that's not pleasing to him and replacing it with the way that God calls us to live. And it will be a lifelong thing. And then thirdly, Jesus says, do the things you did at first. And this is key. If you want to have victory over some things that you know aren't pleasing to God, focus more on doing the things that God calls you to do. Love the Lord and serve him with all of your heart. Live each day as if it were your last. When he returns, may he find us knee deep in the things that he's called us to do. Put the interests of others ahead of yourself. Introduce others to Jesus. Don't keep his grace and his forgiveness a secret. I mean, this is good news, folks. And in times like this, do not be anxious or fearful. Be discerning, yes. Be wise, yes. But do not fear. You know, when I was thinking of this, I, I took me back to 1989 when the Calvary Flames won the Stanley Cup. Man, that's a long time ago. Uh, but, I, but I remember nail-biting myself through the entire series because I didn't really know how it was all going to turn out. At the end of every game, I was an emotional wreck. Now, for reasons I can't remember, I wasn't able to watch the final game, and so I videotaped it. Well, as I was making my way to my car after the meeting in the parking lot, some insensitive, over-exuberant hockey nut could not contain himself and let it be known to everyone within a two-square-mile radius that the Flames had won the Stanley Cup. And I mean, I was rejoicing, but I was kind of choked up because I wanted to experience the nerve-wracking thing, you know, of watching this thing. But anyways, when I got home, I decided to watch the whole game anyways. And you know, it was the only game I ever watched in which I came to the end energized rather than an emotional wreck. For you see, I knew how this game would turn out. And that gave me peace throughout. I mean, if we scored, I was jubilant. I mean, if the other team scored, I wasn't worried. If the other team was winning, I'd say, hey, you know, you may be winning in the second, but the third period's are coming. You see, I was able to rest peacefully throughout that game. I was able to rejoice even when things were looking terrible because I knew how it was all going to turn out in the end. Now, church, that is the mindset we need to have as we face these uncertain days. 
We may face some setbacks. We may suffer some losses. The enemy may score some goals on us. In fact, there may be times when the clouds are black and we don't understand and we're frustrated. But in the midst of it all, we need not fear or panic or hide because we know that with Christ, we will be victorious. If God is for us, who can stand against us? And so between now and the time of Christ's return, may our eyes be on Jesus. And may we bring healing to our families and to our friendships, to our city, to our world, and grow closer in our relationship with the Lord by living humble lives, by praying without ceasing, by seeking God's face earnestly, and by devoting and loving and serving Him with full devotion. Friends, I want to experience all that God has for me. I really do. I, I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to give my life to lesser things. I don't want to waste energy on petty arguments and secondary issues. I don't want to live life half full. No, there's only one way that I want to live out the rest of my life. And that is to be all in with Jesus. Come what may. Regardless of the cost, I join Paul in saying, for me to live is Christ. My question to you in closing is, what about you? For you to live is what? Amen. You have to make a decision, friends. If you want all that God has for you, then you need to give him all of you. There's no middle ground there. Jesus never gave us the option. Each of us must decide what we're going to do with him. I'm going to give you a moment right now just to ask the Lord what he's saying to you, what he's calling you to do about it. And then a moment, the worship team is going to lead us in a song that declares Christ is enough for me and I pray that you'll be able to sing it with us from a heart of conviction may be so to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love